Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I chat with John Bassett III, Chairman of the Board of the Vaughn Bassett Furniture Company. We talk about globalization and the effect it's had on the furniture industry, the international trade battle he waged, which was written about by Beth Macy in her book, Factory Man, John's book, Making It in America, and what entrepreneurs need to know to succeed in business today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Radar Podcast, John. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So let's start with a bit about you and your background. Your family's been in the furniture business for generations. Was the family business something you always wanted to do? Well, it was something when you were the only Bassett son that you were expected to do. My grandfather started the Bassett Industries in 1902. Uh, he had two sons, and those two sons only had one boy, and that's me. Mm. So um, I was expected to go in the furniture business, which I did, and that's where I started. And you also had a, a, quite a history. You joined the military, and you had lots of life experiences around that. Can you talk a little bit about your past? Absolutely. I grew up in a very small southern town of Bassett, Virginia, the headquarters of the Bassett Furniture Industries. And after college, I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to do something on my own. I did not want to go back uh, to those factories immediately. So um, I joined a ROTC unit at Washington and Lee University and became a young second lieutenant. And I was fortunate enough in 1959 to be sent to Germany. And so I was in Germany. I was supposed to be there two years, but the Russians built the, uh, the Berlin Wall when I was there. And our president, John F. Kennedy, extended everybody in Germany for another year. Mm -hmm. So I actually uh, was in Germany for three years. I served with the 14th, 14th Armored Cav, and our duty and responsibility was on the east-west German border. So I had a chance to look across that border and appreciate how lucky I was and that we are that we were born an American and lived in a free country. Mm -hmm. And during your career in the furniture industry, you had an interesting uh, experience involving an international trade battle. In fact, Beth Macy has written a book about it called Factory Man. Can you give our listeners kind of a general overview of that battle and, and the experience you had? I certainly can. She did write a wonderful book. By the way, the movie rights of the book have been purchased by uh, Tom Hanks and mm -hmm. his company. And uh, it's a book about globalization, using our family as an example of what happened in the furniture industry. And um, it is, she was on the bestseller list of the New York Times for quite a few weeks. But the Chinese, uh, in the, about the 1990s, started making wood furniture. Now, upholstery is not as effective because uh, the ladies of this country pick out different fabrics, different welts, different skirts, different arms, and et cetera. And you don't have the economies of scale that you had in bedroom and dining room furniture. So they started making furniture in China. And uh, we competed very well through the 1990s. All of this changed dramatically in 2001 when they became a member of the World Trade Organization, which I will refer to as the WTO. Mm -hmm. Once they were in the WTO, their prices 
plummeted. Uh, and, and the bottom dropped out of the market. By that time, I had left the Bassett Industries and joined my wife's family company, furniture company called Dawn Bassett Furniture in January 1st, 1983. So I was over here at the time. But the whole furniture industry uh, in wood was affected. And factories were closing uh, left and right. Thousands of people were being laid off. And and that was panic. That's the only way to explain it. You have to put yourself back in 2001, two and three. And then we found out that there was a rule at the WTO and a law in the United States books. The law actually goes back to the 1930s called dumping. And dumping is when you sell a product in another country for less than your manufacturing cost. And what you're doing is dumping your product in that country to force everybody out of business so you can capture all the, uh, the business. And that's exactly what happened. And I led a coalition that challenged the, uh, the Chinese. And at that time, it was the largest dumping petition uh, brought against the, the government of China in the, uh, ever at the WTO. All right. And what was the first sign, sort of the trigger? when you realized you had a huge fight ahead of you? I'm glad you asked that question because the prices were plummeting. And many of the United States manufacturers at the time uh, said, well, we'll close our factories and just buy this product overseas. That's what we'll do. So I, I wanted to go actually look the people in the eye. I wanted to see exactly what was going on. So I went to China. And I went to northern China. The prices seemed to be less up there than anywhere else. I met this gentleman who were erecting a huge, well, a series of factories with obvious uh, Chinese government help. And I told him, I said, I might be interested in, in, in buying your product. And he looked me in the eye and said, this is what you must do. And I said, all right. He said, the first thing, you must close every factory you have. Hmm. You must get rid of all of your people. You must sell all of your machinery. And you must put yourself in my hands. Wow. And then, I mean, <laughs> just think of what he's saying. Yeah. And there was no smile on the face. He was extremely serious. And as we left and went back to fly back to the United States, I told my son, why? I said, get ready. We're going to war. Mm -hmm. They're being supported by the, United, by the Chinese government. They're picking up the bill. This is not what we were promised uh, when the Commerce Department asked us to, to support GATT. They're dumping. And either we're going to have to resist this or this industry will disappear. Because once you tell them where to sell the furniture, if you did buy from them, you had to tell them where to ship the container. So we had to tell them who our retailers were and right. where those re retailers were located. And I knew what they were going to do, and they did it. As soon as they found out who the retailers were, they went around us and went straight to the retailer. So um, it was, uh, this was a call to, are we going to fight or are we going to capitulate? Right, right. And through that experience, what would you say is the biggest thing that you learned? What I learned was that Americans at that time were extremely naive. I met an older Chinese businessman in 1984, 
And what he told me one night kept coming back to me. And he said, we have figured you out. And I said, all right, tell me who we are. This is, this, this is through interpreters. Mm-hmm. And he said, we, do, we transact business around the world. And we have never met anyone as greedy as the Americans. You will do anything for money. Hmm. And we've never met people this naive. And then he said this, when we get on top, don't expect us to be so dumb to do for you what you have been so dumb to do for us. Wow. And I knew then the rules of the game had changed. So uh, I grew up. I became more mature. I started looking in a 360-degree circle than just straight ahead. We were playing by different rules. Right, right. And was there anything unexpected or surprising that you came across? Well, once I adopted that philosophy, the answer is no. Mm. I mean, I realized that that the rules had changed. Right. And uh, we were going to have to watch our backs. We had to watch our planks. We had to realize that uh, price became absolutely dominant uh, for a while. I don't think quality meant that much. I think the quality has improved immeasurably now. But it was all about price. And we uh, uh, we just had to adjust the way we we ran our businesses. And that's and everybody talks about innovation, education, entrepreneurship, all that. And I agree with all of them. We did something different. And I wrote a book after Beth wrote her book, Factory Man. I wrote a book called Making It in America. Mm-hmm. And what we did, we organized our people and our organizations. And before we shut everything down, and we did close some factories, uh, but we went to our people and we said, if we're going to survive, we got to do this together. And the book is about how we organized our people. And they, the people in these plants wanted to be a part of this. They did not want to see it, some CFO looking at figures and closing the plant. They said, we can make a better product, we can make a less expensive product, and we can deliver it fast, and we do all these other things. But the American worker is an exceedingly efficient worker, but you have to give them a chance. Hmm. And how did other companies in the industry, other furniture companies respond? Were they supportive, and did they they help? (laughs) Well, it was a mixed bag. I have to be very candid. You have to remember a lot of the factories had, had were closing. Um, uh, the people who ran those factories, many of them were in companies that had been around for decades and generations. Uh, they went; some of them went back a hundred years, and they were telling their employees, "There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we could do." And until we found out about dumping, and by the way, the Commerce Department didn't tell us about this. We had to pay a law firm to find out what our own laws said. The United States government did not say, this is what we're doing, and these are the rules of the game. We had to find them out on our own. So uh, they were telling their employees, there's nothing we could do. Then all it's something that was something we could do. Now what are you going to do? Right. Are you going to tell the empl- your old employees, I'm not going to join this coalition? We don't care if you really lose your job or not. I mean, it caused a lot of heartburn for everybody. So do we have our factories, our companies support us? Yes. 
we had to, to be able to ask the government for an investigation. And the government conducts an investigation. You don't sue the Chinese. You ask the government to investigate. You had to have 51% of the industry, which we got. And then, but there was a lot of them that said, no, we don't want this investigation. We want to continue doing what we're doing. And that was closing our operations. Hmm. Interesting. And so after having been through this experience and in and running your company today, do you see any benefits from the increasing globalization of industry and commerce? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not proposing that we build a wall around this country. That, that's not what I'm proposing at all. I'm not proposing we have a 45% tariff. I'm not saying that, that, um, that America should become isolationist. That, that is not my position. My position is this. There are rules of the game out there for everybody in the WTO, including the Chinese and the Indians and others. Let's play by the rules. We don't, Donald Trump talks about a new laws. We don't need new laws. We need to enforce the laws that we've already pledged to do. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, in the anti-dumping law, I went back to when we started our petition, which is 2003 through 2015. All right. And I took three countries. I took China, India, the two that probably, they certainly have the largest population and probably the most to gain. And then I took the United States, which have the most, we probably have the most to defend, being the largest market. And I said, how many dumping petitions have been imposed, not initiated, actually imposed by these countries against other countries over that 11 or 12-year period? Uh, China, uh, India leads the list. They imposed 353 anti-dumping petitions against other members of the WTO. Number two was China at 166. And number three was the United States at 163. So the country that had the most to defend imposed the least. Hmm. And those countries are going by the rules. They are enforcing the rule. They are making the rest of the WTO do what they say they should do. Why don't we do it? We probably should impose the most, but we didn't. And when people challenge me on this, I say, go to the WTO website. It is public information. It's right there in front of you. And so I think there are many benefits of globalization. But when people cheat, or not people, countries cheat, they should be called to task for it. The second thing that upsets me is currency manipulation. And they, the Chinese manipulated that currency. They depressed it. Uh, 20 to 30 percent for years. Maybe it's closer to where it should be today. But by depressing that currency 20 to 30 percent, it meant that prices were cheaper by 20 to 30 percent. Now, if we float the United States dollar, the English float the pound, the euro floats the euro, the Japanese float the yen, if China wants to be a world economic power, they should float that currency, the yuan. Mm-hmm. And do it. Do what the rest of us do, and then let the best country win. Right. So, kind of getting back to your book, you mentioned making it in America. You lay out a twelve-point plan for how to succeed in business. What advice would you offer new entrepreneurs just starting out? I would offer them several pieces of advice. Number one is, if you're gonna play in this on, on this ball field, 
If you're going to play in this game, be sure you are adequately capitalized. Uh, a lot of the people that you're going to compete against have staying power. So be sure you have enough capital to take on whoever your adversary is going to be. Number two is don't overlook the power of your people. Your people working for you, if you will, if there are five rules of the 12 rules that I call the five great rules. Number one, attitude. You have to start with an attitude. We're going to win. Don't start as a loser. Two, leadership. Don't ask anybody to do something you won't do yourself. Roll up your sleeves and go to work with your people. Three, change. When you start out, be willing to change because this thing moves so fast fast today, you, what you do today might not be relevant six months from now, might not be relevant six weeks from now. Number four is don't panic. They love to panic you and tell you you can't do it. The easiest battle to win is when the other side surrenders before the first shot is fired. Hmm. Just calm down. There's never been a good business decision made when people were panicking. And last is teamwork and communications. Everybody in your organization has to be on board, and the way you get them on board is through communication. Constantly tell people where you are and ask for their help. Those would be the things I would tell a young entrepreneur to do. Interesting. And so shifting gears just a little bit um, to a little bit more general, how would you describe the current state of the American economy? And and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on the rise of the so-called gig economy. All right, let's first, how is the United States economy? We are still recovering from the financial crisis of 2008, 9, 10, 11, et cetera. I mean, our financial system almost went under. It almost went up. It was the greatest threat this country has ever had since the Great Depression. We call it the Great Recession. But literally, the Federal Reserve under Ben Bernanke saved us. And he saved us by kept printing money, trillions. So we are still recovering from that. If you're in manufacturing, then you probably have not recovered as well as the the service side of the uh, industry, and probably not as well as the banking side. So I think we have a lot of improvement to make. We really do. But we, listen, we dodged the bullet. That was the thing we did. So let's give everybody credit for that. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get to the gig society, I'm a manufacturer. I read about it. I study it. I find it interesting. But I have to ship a quality product on time to my customers, which means I need those people in my operation on the days I tell them I need them, which is virtually every day, five days a week. Frankly, I have not figured out how I'm going to use this. And hopefully when I go to this meeting in October, I can learn more about it than I presently know. And so to close our conversation, um, in your book, you mentioned quite a few sources of inspiration throughout your life and your career. What and or who are your sources of inspiration today? Well, I still look at history. And of course, you're right. I look, I see a Winston Churchill. I see a John Kennedy. I see a George Patton. I see these people who, when I look back and say, all right, what did they do and how did they do it? This is the type of people I'm looking for today. In politics, uh, people ask me, John, are you a Democrat or Republican? I say, I'm neither one. I'm an A. They say, what is an A? I said, an A is an American. 
I'm looking for Congress and the people we have in politics that care about this country. And frankly, I don't care which one party gets the credit for it. And to do that, we must compromise. We have lost uh, some of our, if not most of our ability to compromise. Look, if you are a dictator, you can dictate. But if you are a member of a democracy, the way a democracy works is compromise. You, we are, none of us are going to get 100% of what we want. But we've always been able to find, until lately, we've been able to find the middle ground and move this country forward. And that is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who have that type of attitude. And I care less what party they're in or what gender they are or any or what religion they belong to. America has always had the ability to find that common ground that's good for all of us. And I hope those people will emerge in the near future. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, John. This has been a real pleasure. Well, thank you for asking me, and I look forward to the meeting that we're going to have in October. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 